The Fanboy, episode 96. Everybody, Mario Francisco Robles, MFR here with you, and this is episode 96 of the Fanboy Podcast. How's everybody doing out there? Uh, you know, it's funny, this is going to be a very interesting episode, because I had a ton to talk about already, and then last night we got hit with a big old surprise, uh, I don't even know what we call it, it wasn't really an announcement, it was more of a uh, Batman potential news siren that went off last night and uh, now we got to unpack that a little bit and meanwhile I still have plenty to talk to you about which interestingly enough it all sort of connects I swear this week has been filled with things that feel almost like like divine intervention and if I believed in that sort of thing I would believe it a lot more after this week so it's interesting how it all sort of comes together but since I know what you're probably most likely here to hear about first is Batman stuff. So I will do the Batman stuff now, and then I'm going to kind of tell you how the arc of this week sort of culminating in this Batman news arriving is really sort of like just the timing has been odd and kind of perfect. But all right, so let's do it. Let's let's recap a little bit. For those of you who didn't have the, uh, the time to check out all the ins and outs of all of the confusing news that came out last night. Let me recap it for you. So everything began when Variety <clears throat> published a report uh, that, <clears throat> that said that Robert Pattinson was set to play Batman. And, you know, they tweeted it out and the, and the tweet, it was all very, very uh, definitive sounding. You know, they said that Robert Pattinson will be the youngest man to ever play Batman. The headline itself says Robert Pattinson to play the Batman. Um, so, you know, right off the bat, you hear that from Variety and everyone's ready to run and take that to the bank, myself included. Uh, but then the interesting thing is, I'd say within an hour, the other two big trade magazines, the other two big trade publications, which are The Hollywood Reporter and Deadline, came out to sort of indirectly sort of debunk variety. It's very, it's, it's, it's peculiar because like they all agree on one thing. They all agree that Robert Pattinson is the front runner right now, but both Deadline and The Hollywood Reporter caution us that he's merely the front runner who sits atop a shortlist. And what I find interesting is like the verbiage too, because it is oddly testy. It is oddly contradictory. And you don't usually see the trades sort of undercut one another this way. Because, you know, while Variety left themselves some wiggle room, while in their report, they cautioned very similar as I did with my Army Hammer report back in February. The same way I cautioned, they said, you know, a deal has not yet been struck, but they're in talks and it's, you know, it looks like it's set. It's set. That's why they're already talking about it as if he is Batman, not just merely in contention for Batman. But then Deadline comes in and they say, while a report declared that 
that Twilight Saga star Rob Pattinson had been set for the Batman, Deadline hears that the filmmaker and Warner Brothers haven't gotten to that place yet. Pattinson is on a short list, but so is Nicholas Holt, who stars in Tokian and is about to open in the X-Men first class film. What is it? About to open in the X-Men first class film Dark Phoenix. Sorry, they pronounce they they call it a X-Men first class film as if it's a separate franchise. But anyway, that was just a tangent. Uh, they also say we'll keep you posted as this unfolds, but several sources said that right now the bat suit isn't filled yet. Okay, deadline. Then the Hollywood Reporter comes in, and they say they also say that Pattinson sits atop a shortlist, but hasn't been cast yet. And they also mention Holt, Aaron Taylor Johnson, and our boy Army Hammer. And they're not saying like all these people are still in contention, I suppose, but they do caution that all these names are still basically on that shortlist, and that Pattinson has yet to sign a deal. They all say that. And yet, Variety seems to think it's inevitable. The other two don't seem to want to go there yet. And with, with Deadline in particular talking about, you know, there may not be an offer on the table. Even The Hollywood Reporter put that. It's unclear if there's even an offer on the table. I just find that very interesting that the, two, that, that the, the, the three trades would more or less sort of like go after each other that way. And it's indirect and it's not hostile and no one's like, you know, oh, you're a liar or you're debunked or you're a fraud. But they're all kind of like, you know, the, the other two trades kind of told Variety, slow down a little bit. We haven't heard that there's even a deal yet. So chill out, um, which is just interesting to me. The whole situation is fascinating. Because sitting back, you know, yesterday watching it all unfold was like, it was like watching, yeah, you know, I, I just pulled out my popcorn and I'm like, what's going to happen next? And is Matt Reeves going to finally set the record straight and jump over on Twitter and announce it himself just to sort of clarify things? As of this moment, he has not yet done that. So the funny thing of it all is we're kind of still in the middle of this. We're still trying to figure out Who's Batman, even though Variety already said it's going to be Robert Pattinson. So it's just, it, it, it's, it's confusing. And, you know, personally, for me, of the three big trades, the one that I tend to listen to the most when it comes to Warner Brothers, when it comes to DC, is The Hollywood Reporter. Because THR and the WB have a pretty nice relationship. And, you, and that is always made evident by the fact that in their exclusives and their exclusive stories, when they break a big DC scoop, there's usually quotes from the primaries in the story. People who actually spoke to the Hollywood Reporter about the news, about the casting, about what's happening. You know, I always think about when Zack Snyder had to step down from Justice League. And mind you, we know what Justice League ultimately became. But before, before we knew how it would turn out, that was going to be their biggest superhero movie ever. The big crowning achievement, the end of their, you know, the, 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 the big culmination event of these years of building with Batman v Superman and Suicide Squad and Wonder Woman. You know, Justice League was supposed to be the big one. And when it was time to announce this news about who's directing the big one and the fact that Zack Snyder is stepping down, but Joss Whedon is coming in, who did, the, who did Warner Brothers get on the phone and give that story to complete with quotes from Zack Snyder and the studio? They called The Hollywood Reporter. 
And there, there, there are other examples of that. But to me, that one is a very good one to point out because that was a huge story about a huge movie. And Warner Brothers could have delivered it themselves. They could have issued a press release. They could have called Variety. They could have called Deadline. They went to The Hollywood Reporter. So that always tells me that when it comes to DC stuff, THR really kind of has their finger on the pulse. So, you know, if they're saying that Pattinson is a front runner, then I believe Pattinson is a front runner. If they're unwilling to say that he, it's it's pretty much a foregone conclusion and that he's set and that he's going to be the star of the movie, if they're not willing to go there yet, well, then neither am I. But... um and, you know, the question now becomes, you know, since I wrote the Army Hammer story back in February and I kind of painted that big bullseye on my forehead, uh, you know, everyone wants to know, how do I feel about it? What do I think about all this? And, you know, before I get into my feelings on it, I also want to point out that having Army Hammer's name brought up by The Hollywood Reporter, legitimizing him as someone who is in contention and on the shortlist is a pretty cool thing to see. But also, I have a feeling we might end up seeing mo like multiple of these actors in the film itself. Because there seems to be something at play here where Reeves is reading multiple people for like the same parts and he's trying to figure out the dynamics. And he, he, know, he basically seems to have a sense for the actors he wants to work with, but has not necessarily decided what roles he wants them to play. Because, you know, if you think back to like Batman Begins, right? When Christopher Nolan was casting Batman Begins, he had Killian Murphy audition for Batman. You could find that screen test online somewhere. And then he ultimately ended up playing the Scarecrow. So when I look at some of these names, which by the way, have been floating around since, you know, I, I first spoke about them on this show in like January, leading up to the big Army Hammer story in mid-February. So these names, none of them really surprise me. They've been around for ages. But it what would, would not surprise me is to see a few of them end up in the film just in different roles. And, you know, it was floated to me earlier today. And mind you, I'd already been thinking about it. So it's like great minds think alike. But people were like, wouldn't Army Hammer make for a great Harvey Dent? Or wouldn't Nicholas Holt make for a great Riddler? Or whatever the case. And like, first of all, I agree. Army Hammer as Harvey Dent would be pretty, pretty good casting. Um, but it just got me thinking about this idea of like, you know, we should all sit tight. Because I would not be surprised to hear that two, maybe even three of these names that have been floating around for ages. The reason they've been floating around is because they are indeed in the Batman just not necessarily in the roles that we think they're up for. And in particular, when it comes to who's going to play the Batman, you know, I think Matt Reeves made that decision a long time ago. Because here's the thing, it, people tend to look at things in a very linear way. They assume, okay, the project gets a green light. Uh, all, you know, all these things have to happen in a certain sequence, right? You get a green light, you get a final script, you start screen testing, then you cast your actors, then you get into pre-production, then you start filming. That's a very sort of linear way of looking at things. But there's a problem with that. Not all directors adhere to that. Some directors like to sit down with their potential stars way in advance and just kind of kick the tires around and kind of see like, how, how would you like this? How is our dynamic? Do you get my vision? What is it about you that might make you the perfect person for this role? 
you know, actors, you know, directors have these kinds of meetings all the time. And if you remember going back to like 2017, there were plenty of reports that Reeves was already sitting down with actors. He was meeting with them before he'd even completed a script. He, he probably at that point at the end of 2017 probably only had a treatment or some bare bullet points. But he was already set to be meeting with Jake Gyllenhaal the following year. Who was that other guy? The, uh, the one who was in the Spartacus movie who we spoke about for a while. I can't. Oh, uh, Jack uh, something. Jack Houston. Thank you. Jack Houston was also said to have sat down with Reeves for something. And it just kind of makes you realize that like Reeves probably made his decision a long time ago and he's been tailoring his script to the actor he's already selected. Because you got to understand that writers like doing that. If they feel like an actor, especially the star of your movie, the central protagonist, if they feel like they want this person to have a very distinct voice, they will find their actor and then to make sure that it all fits, that, that, that the fusion of character and script and everything coalesce really nicely is they'll revise their script and they'll personalize it to that actor, personalize it to their particular flavor, to their particular qualities, to really take advantage of what it is that they bring to the table. It helps bring out their intangibles as an actor, if they're playing a part or speaking lines that really heighten parts of who they really are, or at least the character as they envision it. So Reeves, I'm, you know, I, I've been a firm believer that this decision was made a long time ago. And one of the reasons he's been revising and why, you know, we, we've heard these weird little stories about there's no final script yet is because I think he's personalizing his story to his cast. So I feel like at some point we're going to get some announcement about who's Batman and then in short order we're going to find out who's playing certain villains and it's going to be some of these actors we've already heard about because he's been talking to these guys for a while and kind of locking everything in. That's, that's how I view it and that's what I think might happen. Now, specifically when it comes to the Army Hammer story, do I feel upset? Do I feel like, oh, this debunks me or I'm, a, you know, do I feel any of that stuff? And it's like, no, I don't. I don't. Because when I wrote that story back in February, I made it very clear. No deal had been signed. They still had to work out the particulars. But assuming that they do, Army Hammer would be the next Batman. So when I hear this, I don't automatically go, well, damn, I was fooled. Or oh, my, my three sources on that were all wrong. And oh, now I'm a, you know, what, what did I do? I've ruined everything. No, all that, all I see when I look at this is, oh, so I guess it didn't work out for whatever reason, be it schedule, be it maybe Reeves just got a different idea. Maybe Hammer decided he didn't really want to do this anymore. You know, whatever the case may be. When I see these headlines, my first gut response is, oh, I guess, I guess that didn't work out. Damn. You know, and if I could go back and change anything, I, and I think I, I spoke about this before. I might have even spoken about it on the, uh, on the podcast that followed the report, the one that's just called The Army Hammer Batman Story. If any of you are just sort of discovering me now and, in, in, you know, in the wake of this Robert Pattinson news and you want to go back and hear how I felt about the Army Hammer story, you know, three days after I wrote it, you can go check out that episode because that'll give you uh, some insights into how I view all this stuff. But, you know, if I could go back and change anything, 
I would have just left it at Army Hammer's a front runner. Even though I, I trusted my source, and I still do, because they've been right about a lot of things, I feel like just to protect myself a little more and take a little less of the heat and take a little less of a bullseye off my forehead, I probably just should have downplayed it a little bit and just said that Army Hammer is simply a front runner. But as things stand, I feel fine. There's no, there's no red on my ledger. I did nothing wrong here, all right? I, I passed on a story last February that I truly believe to be true that came from a primary source who's been true a lot with two secondary sources who backed it up as well. So honestly, I feel right as rain when it comes to this stuff, especially after the week I've had because this week has been filled with little pearls of wisdom, little things that have forced me to sort of pivot and, and view what I do, what all this stuff is, very, very differently. And it was stuff that I was dying to talk to you about. And that's why it's kind of perfect, really, that the Batman story dropped when it did. Because now it gives me the perfect sort of avenue with which to go explore this with you a little bit. Um, because I really, I, when I look at the blogosphere... When I look at this work that we do, I have like sort of moral ethical quandaries. I oftentimes feel like, am I doing something good here or am I polluting the film industry? Am I polluting what, you know, what it is to just be a devout fan or, or even if I'm not personally doing it, am I attached to an industry that does? Am I attached to an industry that is slowly taking all of the fun and all of the joy out of being a lover of movies and out of being a, a purveyor of fine entertainment. You know, I, I, so I guess it's, it's time to get into some of that a little bit because it all connects. You just have to trust me that it all connects. So this all began with the latest episode of 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff arriving on Monday morning. I listen to that as I listen to it every week. I'm obsessed with that show and something to wrestle with, which again, if you're a wrestling fan, if you're not listening to those, I don't know what's going on with you. But, you know, it's even if you're not a wrestling fan, I should just let you know, it's a pretty fascinating look at the rise and fall of a company, at what led to its amazing, huge, meteoric rise in the mid-90s to all of a sudden crashing and burning and, and going pretty much bankrupt and having to get sold off to WWE, WWF at the time, within a six-year span of becoming this huge global brand. And... He, you know, he, he, Bischoff really goes into great detail about all the different things that led to the company's demise. And yes, he lets himself off the hook a little bit too often, but he goes into a lot of detail about the, the, the daily grind and difficulties and the huge political pressures that led to his company folding. And on this week's episode in particular, he talked about the dirt sheets a lot. And we say the dirt sheets as wrestling fans, what we're really referring to are geek blog sites. So the dirt sheets for the film industry are all these blog sites like Revenge of the Fans, like all the like all of these little comicbook.com and Dark Horizons and Latino Review. And I mean, it, it, take your pick, you know, Collider, Screen Rant, you know, they're all some varying level of a dirt sheet. Because what we've done is, us bloggers, us fans, is we found a way to turn being a fan into an industry. 
You know, we, we start these newsletters and these websites where we just go and feverishly start discussing any and all news about this thing that we love. And any information that we get about this thing that we love, we share it in these detailed reports. And we think we're doing this big service and we're giving all the fans, we're arming them with all of this information. And in theory, yes, that is what we're doing. But ultimately, with the dirt cheats in particular and their relationship to WCW in the late 90s, it became this thing where they were, it, WCW became like the whipping boy. It became like the DCEU was a couple years ago. It just became fun to rag on the company as they were struggling, as they were losing stars, as they were losing money, as the new owners who bought the parent company of WCW started cutting their budgets and, and putting all these creative restraints on them. The bloggers, the dirt sheets would basically just kind of point and laugh at them. And it got to a point where like, the, the bloggers really started to impact the public perception of the product. And even beyond that, his owners, you know, his, the owners of the company, the corporate people, because, you know, at some point, Time Warner bought Turner Broadcasting and that brought a whole new, you know, level of, of, of you know, complications. But the issue was all these suits, all these executives who didn't necessarily want to go and take in the product and monitor it themselves they would go and tell an assistant, hey, go see what they're, what they're saying about WCW on the internet and let me know, you know what, what it is that fans think. And what the problem with that is dirt sheets don't necessarily represent the fans. They only represent the most hardcore, intense, crazy fans, that small percentage who don't just watch the show on Monday night, but also every single day they're looking for every scrap of information they can because they obsessively follow it and they love it and they're entitled to do that. But on these, you know, on these little blog sites, all you'd get is this very sort of, you know, skewed view of the product. And, you'd, and they would get information, these reporters would get information from people who, of course, they're going to trust. What if it's, you know, the world champion of a company who called you up from a payphone after a pay-per-view to tell you, hey, you know, so-and-so is about to get fired and it's chaos back here and this, this and that. But the problem is, while the reporters want to go and believe them because, oh my God, I just got off the phone with someone I just saw on TV, they're real. The problem is everyone has an agenda. Everyone has some sort of, you know, th th there's a reason, there's a political gain in a lot of the information they would pass. And it's hard to properly vet that. And what ends up happening is a lot of speculation would then get reported as fact or one person's viewpoint on a situation gets passed on and now it's part of wrestling lore for the last 20 years. And Bischoff has had a lot of fun basically hearing a lot of these little, you know, mythologies that have been built. And then when the, when the host, Conrad Thompson, asks him about them, he mentions that either never happened or that was one of 10 ideas we discussed that day. That was never going to be the plan. It was one of several plans, but this website took it ran with it, said it was the plan, and now for a whole generation of fans who grew up on those sites, that is their truth. And it totally screwed with his ability to speak to his bosses about the product because they were going based on what the blog site said. And it really kind of helped just poison the well on the WCW brand and, and the overall product. And while listening to that, 
I saw all these little parallels and it started feeling like, like specifically like with DC, I was like, oh my goodness, the DCEU got dirt sheeted. You know, the, all the blog sites that just smelled blood in the water and saw, ooh, you get lots of clicks and lots of attention and lots of social media followers when you pile on DC struggles. So let's just do a lot of that. And I started realizing this week that, wow, you know, it really, to me, it feels like the DCEU got dirt sheeted. They got dealt the same hand that WCW did, where they're just trying to pivot and figure out what they got to do to stay relevant and tweak their plans and just live, you know, do what they got to do as a company. But the online website fan geek blog community just totally like turned on them, made them feel like their product sucks and is subpar and the wrestlers would go home and read this stuff too. And it was, it was like this weird, nasty, you know, negative loop. And it made me look at all of that and made me decide, I don't want to be that. I don't want to be a dirt sheet writer. I don't want to be a Dave Meltzer. I don't want to be that. That's a prominent wrestling uh, journalist, so to speak. Um, you know, I walked away from that podcast really kind of feeling like, I hope I'm not hurting the very industry I love. Because that's something that Bischoff said. You know, the great irony is that these people profess, they proclaim to love wrestling. And the reason that they, that they report on it so passionately and in such, you know, vivid detail is because they love it. But they are inadvertently hurting the very thing they love by spreading things that are maybe only half-truths. Or maybe they are true, but no one should know about them just yet. Maybe that thing that you just turned into a gigantic controversy would have resolved itself in 72 hours if you just allowed those people having the conflict to figure it out. Let that wrestler go to his boss and have them hash out their issues. Instead, that angry wrestler called you on Monday and you blew up the story and now it's a huge ordeal. You know, so I realized that this blogging thing, this way in which fans become reporters and start, you know, building up this whole industry around being a fan and getting whatever scrap of information they can and running it on their blog site. I realized that like it's really dangerous. You got to have a lot of integrity. You have to have good intentions. You have to know what you're there to do because otherwise it's very easy for this whole thing to get very sour and go very sideways. So that was on Monday where I was thinking about all that. Then yesterday, there were two different, actually there were three different things yesterday and the last of which was the Batman thing, okay? The first thing that happened yesterday for me was I woke up to all these tweets about the Joker script and I was infuriated by what I heard and by what I saw because it sounds like some bloggers read the script and then took it to the internet to trash this movie and to make it sound like, oh my God, you may as well just cancel your Twitter accounts because it's going to be mayhem when this movie comes out. And they basically opened up this whole can of worms where now this movie that was once pretty well hyped and people were very excited for it based on the trailers and there's lots of reasons to think that this is going to be a pretty special and unique film. Now, all of a sudden, the entire internet conversation is about what a mess it might be. And then you have people defending it. You have people saying, oh no, it's going to be a disaster. And it's like, why would you do this? 
This embarrasses me as a blogger. This makes me want to just leave entirely. I do not want to be associated with an industry that undercuts the very industry it professes to love. Because that's what you're doing. If you're going to take a script for a film that has not come out yet and start telling people that this is going to be a divisive, polarizing film, you're already planting that seed in your crowd. You're already planting that seed in the mind of the prospective audience. So now instead of walking in with an open mind, all the people who read that are going to walk in feeling like, oh, well, now let's see why it's so divisive. And they're going to look, oh, that must be the scene that so-and-so said was going to make people angry. Oh, that and like now they're not in the movie. They're not falling into the dream state that Alfred Hitchcock wants the audience to fall into when he makes a film, back when he made films. You know, you're supposed to go into a dream state and just watch the movie and enjoy it for the entertainment that it is. Enjoy the twists and turns, the acting, the drama, the whole nine yards. You're supposed to be able to just walk in and do that. But when already a subset of the fandom is being fed negative-sounding, panic-inducing information about the movie, now you've just tainted that movie for a bunch of people. Like, what kind of a scumbag do you have to be to think that, oh, okay, it's all right for me to do this? So yesterday, I was just incensed by that. And not only am I, was I angry that people were passing on information about the script, and, and, and especially doing it in a negative you know, uh, clickbaity sort of way. But also, it's so devoid of actual knowledge about the situation. Because the script with the Joker almost doesn't matter. I know it's going to sound funny, but it almost doesn't matter. Because first of all, you already had Zazie Beats pointing out in an interview a few months ago that they didn't really even go by the script. But the script was being rewritten every day. So... How are you going to go and look at a script and tell me that, oh, the movie's going to be a disaster or the movie's going to be divisive? You don't know yet. Not to mention, a script is one thing, but a script in the hands of a wonderful director and a great cast is a whole other ball game. You can't judge just based on the words on the page. There are great scripts that become terrible movies. There are terrible scripts that become great movies. There are movies that have no scripts that end up being phenomenal. Because that's the second thing that happened yesterday. I started listening to Christopher McQuarrie's epic long podcast with the Empire, you know, the Empire podcast. They, they've sat down with Chris McQuarrie for each of the last two Mission Impossible films, and they've spoken about his process of creating them. And they're hours and hours long, but they're riveting. Christopher McQuarrie is an excellent interview. Now he's instantly jumped up to the top of like people I'd love to interview on this show one day, which, by the way, I have a very cool guest coming next week, but we'll get to that in a second. Um, Macquarie instantly jumped to someone I'm dying to speak to because he was pointing out like with Fallout, they hardly had a script. There were times when he was having sets constructed and still going, I don't know what we're going to do there yet. Later today, I don't know what we're going to do there yet. And look how wonderful Fallout turned out. Mission Impossible Fallout was a big win. Fans loved it. Critics loved it. It did very nice financially. Macquarie's going to come back to film a two-part next film. You know, not a two-part, but he's going to film the next two basically back-to-back. -back. I mean, the, the movie was a huge win, 
And meanwhile, it went in with like hardly, you know, with apparently only a very loose script that was evolving greatly on the fly. He said he did, he wasn't even sure what the villain's motivation was until they began filming. So you can't judge a film based on the script. So these people, I want to, I, I want to say, I want to call names or I want to insult them. <laughs> I want to like just drop all kinds of four letter words right now. Cause it's honestly, you know, it's my show. It's fucking infuriating. And specifically with the Joker, I've spoken to people who've been on that set. I've spoken to people who worked on the film and I'm going to, I'm going to share something with you. Okay. Are you ready? Cool kids. It's just us now. Shh, don't tell anyone. On the set of the Joker, they often would spend entire days filming multiple versions of the same scene. Because that's the sort of experimental way that Phillips approached this material. A lot of times they would film the same scene one or two or three different ways at all these different levels. You know what I mean? Where all of a sudden, okay, in this version of the scene, when the Joker comes out of the courthouse, the crowd that's standing outside basically ignores him and he looks like something of a loner and a pariah and it didn't work out. In the next scene, when he comes out of the courthouse, the crowd is cheering him on and there's ticker tape and they're holding signs. Then in this version of the court, when he comes out, he pulls out a Tommy gun and plows down the crowd. I mean, you know, I, I, I just took a real example and just had a little fun with it. A real example that I was given from someone who worked on the set who confided in that in me. But the point is, the film is like a living, breathing document. Todd Phillips wanted to film all kinds of different variations, obviously sticking within a certain blueprint that he had in mind. But his plan was, okay, I'm going to film a ton. And then in the editing bay, I'm going to find my movie. I'm going to see how it is I want to play this thing. That is how Phillips is approaching the Joker. So therefore, you can go fuck yourself with your concerns about the script. Because the script almost doesn't matter when it comes to a film like this. So, you know, I was infuriated by that. And that fed into what I heard on Monday about how the, you know, basically the geek blogs of the wrestling world really messed with WCW's chances of ever recovering or ever being able to be what it could have been because it had this meteoric rise. It went from being, you know, a steady number two to being number one for over a year and being just an absolute juggernaut to being basically gone in a matter of years. It's a fascinating story. And I'm not gonna put all of that on bloggers. I'm not even gonna put most of it on bloggers. But the fact that the online blogging community of, of quote unquote fans made the boss of a company, made his life that much harder to do his job and save his company. The fact that it led to the corporate overlords and their executive suits to read those reports and decide that they needed to pull the plug on certain things or they needed to undermine the creative decisions of the people who brought them to the top. You know, it just, between that and that Joker thing, I really just started feeling like, I don't know that I want to do this anymore. You know, I want to keep the podcasting going and revengeofthefans.com will live on and it's probably you know, I don't it's not going anywhere but I'm 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 mulling over sort of a change in format or a change in focus because at the end of the day I don't want to be a hindrance I I actually do love this industry 
I have a profound respect for the work that directors and writers and actors do. This stuff is my life. When I talk about entertainment as my life in my little Twitter bio, like I mean it. I live for this stuff. That's why I always say like this podcast is just me hitting record and saying all the things that are on my mind anyway. All day long, what you're hearing right now is my inner monologue and I'm thinking all this stuff anyway. So I'm not going to go away and nothing's changing immediately, but I got to get my, I got to get my crew together and we got to talk about this because I do not want to be part of the problem because there is a problem. Because there was some other stuff in the Macquarie interview I found really interesting, and I think you might too. Because at some point, he was asked the question about like, you know, do these kinds of podcasts or does the reporting or the excessive analysis of all this stuff sort of mess with your creative process or hinder your, you know, you, you, the way you approach these productions? And Macquarie pointed out something that I'm just like, wow, he's so right. And that's probably how directors see all of us what he was talking about how like, listen, you can't tailor your movie. You can't cater to the internet fans and the bloggers. You just can't because they're a very small percentage of the audience. And unfortunately, they're so obsessive about things that they're never satisfied. He pointed out how like once he tried to like, he, he gave a, a cute example of like when he was working on Jack Reacher with Tom Cruise. When Tom Cruise was initially cast, the, a lot of the hardcore fans went on the internet and said, this is an outrage. Jack Reacher is supposed to be a big, tall, brooding guy. You can't hire little shrimpy Tom Cruise for this. So he thought of a way that he might address that. You know, and aside from having Tom Cruise bulk up and get all, you know, he got thicker and more jacked. His hands were puffy in that movie. He got like thick and brawny, you know, more, more so than when he's Ethan Hunt. Um, he had a shot in the movie that he was hoping those fans would appreciate. He's like, all right, you think he's little, but look, here's going to be this, this shot where he doesn't have a shirt on. And we're going to focus in on the, the scars that he has on his body. Cause that's also a signature sort of Jack Reacher thing. You know, this whole idea of like, he's this battered warrior. And he wanted to focus that so that people will maybe go, okay, may, he may not be 6'2", but this is definitely a, a, a good, you know, version of Jack Reacher. This is an honest, you know, good adaptation of Jack Reacher. But what happened? That scene was included in the movie and the bloggers and the hardcore fans, instead of going, oh, wow, okay, you know, he's, he got jacked and he has the scars and, the, you know, he, whatever. They started going, oh, God, Tom Cruise is so vain. They had to do a shirtless, topless scene just so he could show off his body. And Macquarie said, like, when he saw that reaction, he was so turned off that he just decided, I can't make movies to please the online fans because they're never satisfied. There's always going to be some bug up their ass about something. So I have to make this movie for the other 99% of the audience. The people who don't even know a movie is coming until they see the trailer for it and then decide based on the trailer, oh, you know what? Doug's pretty good. When that comes out, you know, I'm going to block out three hours of my life to go to a theater and see that. Macquarie wants to honor those fans. That's who he's here for. He's not here to please the hardcores. And it really sounds like the hardcores are sort of a hindrance to a lot of filmmakers. And listen, 
I don't want to make us all sound bad. You know, being a being a super fan is wonderful. But when you're in this hive where all, everything is like, just look at this week with Game of Thrones. Look at this thing with the petition to HBO to reshoot season eight. Look at the multiple petitions that came up since last night about replacing Robert Pattinson as Batman, which is ludicrous on so many levels. But when you look at the online community, the online fan community, and I put the bloggers and the fans together because at the end of the day, we're all just fans. I'm just a fan just like you are. I have a few friends who give me cool information because I've been doing it for five years and I got a lot of free time on my hands. But at the end of the day, I'm just a fan. So when the industry looks, when filmmakers and artists and actual creators look at the online community, I imagine they go, ugh. I imagine they're fairly grossed out by a lot of the behavior they see. So that's why for me, it's very important for me to try to figure out my place in all this. Because yes, I try my very best to make Revenge of the Fans be a place where things are positive, where we're going to give you the information and we're going to try not to make you feel bad about anything. Even if it's bad news, we're going to try to look at the silver lining. I try to make Revenge of the Fans a haven for people who are tired of all the snark and all the sarcasm and all the backbiting and all of the just childish nonsense that really detracts from what makes, from what we're here to do, which is to love movies and to celebrate our favorite characters and go on journeys with them. That's what we're here for. We're not here to go, oh, let me analyze this, this, um, concept art or ooh, oh they shot an alternate version of this scene with a different costume god what idiots why didn't they go with that other version Ugh. like all of this like this 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 micromanaging and dissecting of stuff that's really none of our business really just has me wondering you know what the future looks like for myself and for revenge of the fans because honestly i'm pretty put off by it all and I have such love and respect and admiration for this industry that I never for a second want to be a thorn in anyone's side. And so when I get information and I, and, 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 and I want to run to report it, I often ask myself, like, is this all right? Should I wait till this director is ready to announce this? Is there a reason that they put a code name on this thing? Am I spoiling a surprise? You know, I realize like, I don't want to be a part of that. I really don't. So I got to get my people together and you know, we're going to, I'm going to figure out what the future looks like for now. We're going to continue with the status quo. You're going to get your stories every day. Today is really, today I'm only putting up one story because Jonathan Brady feels very, very strongly about Robert Pattinson possibly being Batman and he put a lot of heart and soul into that report. So I'm going to publish that today, but I didn't assign any other stories to any of my other writers. I'm not putting up any stories today. I really want to just take a pause after this week and after last night with the Batman stuff and the petitions to replace Robert Pattinson. Like all this, I'm just, I need to hit pause. I need to regroup a little bit because I feel like something's got to give. And listening to the Macquarie podcast, which I cannot uh, recommend highly enough if you love film. Hey, Ross Geller, listen to them. You love it. But anyway, um, you know who you are, Ross. Um, you know, aside from that, you know, or, or walk, so, something I took away from that, I should say, 
is that this industry is extremely volatile. And not necessarily in a bad way, just, just volatile in that you can't predict what's going to happen from what day to the next. That filmmakers and directors have to make a lot of on-the-spot changes and adjustments. That these productions are constantly sort of evolving. And Macquarie makes a big point of saying that like the big mistake that a lot of reporters and a lot of fans make when writing about Hollywood or covering Hollywood is they attempt to use logic. They attempt to apply logic to the proceedings. But the problem is Hollywood and the filmmaking industry, the whole the whole process of making these movies is a highly illogical thing. There are so many egos, so many like outside variables, so many logistics that end up having to get refought at the last second. So many moving parts on any particular blockbuster at any given time that it's damn near impossible to report on it 100% accurately. So what you end up doing as a blogger is you inadvertently create distractions instead of like giving people information that's going to heighten their enjoyment of the thing that they love, which is what I like to try to do. Instead of that, you inadvertently start sending people off on these tangents, looking at stories about things that information that they don't really need to have. You really just kind of like add all this extra fluff that is really almost like a hindrance between the audience and the movie that they're there to see. You don't need to, all this stuff, it's only there because people need daily content. So much of the stories that we see, that we share, that we read about, that we comment on, are all stories that really a few years back before the internet boom and everything, none of us would be given any damn about any of this stuff. So when I look at all this, especially when I look at it and, and, and I realize that unfortunately most bloggers make the realization that negative headlines get a lot more clicks and a lot more attention than positive ones. That's where you end up with the troubling outcome where a lot of sites just end up becoming much snarkier, much more sarcastic, much more mean-spirited because as a business model, that sells in this cynical world we live in. You know, so when I look at like the blogging thing, I don't see it as adding to your love of film. I see it as giving lots of distractions, you know, so it's just, it's, just, it's a tough spot to be in. You know, as someone who loves this, as someone who loves operating Revenge of the Fans, you know, when it feels like, like so much of the water that I'm swimming in has been so badly polluted by people who never ever think about the morality in any of this. It just, you know. And then, and then I turn around and I see like fans signing childish petitions to remake certain movies or recast certain things the way they want it to be. Like I look at the whole online world. I look at all the, this entire thing that I, I, I'm attached to. And, you know, I have more questions than answers. So... You know, I, I've got some soul searching to do. I do. I got to figure out my place in all this stuff and what I want Revenge of the Fans to be and how I want it to stand out above the others. And that may involve not doing what everyone else does. So we're, you know, I, I, I got some stuff to figure out and I hope you'll be patient with me as I go ahead and try to figure it out. But, uh, you know, one thing's for sure. And that's that I ain't going anywhere. And in fact... I'm working on securing a huge guest for next week's show, for episode 97. 
It's someone, it's a screenwriter who worked in the X-Men universe, on the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and they're excited to talk about a new project they're working on, and I've got some questions I've been dying to ask them about, so stay tuned for that when I announce it next week. Um, and hey, look, before we wrap up, you know, I didn't fully opine on Pattinson, on Battinson. And let me just say, if Pattinson gets the part, I'm pretty neutral on it. I'm, I'm ready to give him a chance. You know, a lot of you want to jump on him or you're upset because of, you know, Twilight or whatever. But just like with Zac Efron, how you shouldn't, you know, judge Zac Efron because he was in the high school musical movies and that's how he got famous. But look what he's done since and how he's trying to, you know, remake himself. Robert Pattinson has been doing a lot of dynamite work these last several years, ever since Twilight wrapped up. And for you to judge him because he took an epic payday when he was a new up-and-coming actor and basically got the financial stability that sets him for life now because of Twilight. If you're going to judge him because he was a sparkly vampire a bunch of years ago, then again, I don't know that I even want to write for you or speak to you because it's such an immature, childish, and naive way of looking at things. I'm not saying that you can't disagree with the casting. But if you're flipping out and making angry memes about it and YouTube rants and signing petitions to replace him before you even know if he's been cast, first of all, and before you've seen a single frame of what he's got to bring the character, what it is about him that made Matt Reeves believe in him, if you're judging him before you've seen any of that, before you know any of that, then you, my friend, are part of the problem. But it's okay. Because I think I have been too. And I have to figure out how to fix that. So until next week, life is chaos. Be kind. Adios.